If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer. As a community-powered podcast, which does not take corporate advertisers, and we really hope to keep it this way, we do need your help to keep the show alive. And if every listener chipped in just a little bit a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. So join us today at greendreamer.com support. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to sign up to our newsletter at greendreamer.com to receive the highlights and resources from each episode. When we have got challenges that threaten the land security in our area, people, elders, always reflect back and say, so many people died protecting this land. We cannot allow in our time for this land to be taken. So that's one of the motivating factors for us to be able to continue to wage the war to protect the land today in Bondaland. Today we're speaking with Sinegugu Zukulu, who describes himself as a champion of rural development, having worked all his life to promote development that directly benefits rural people. He works in community development in the Wild Coast, focusing on ecotourism development, agriculture, and youth empowerment. It is Sinegugu's work and life purpose to advocate for rural people living on communal land, getting assistance to secure land tenure that supports their way of life without being pressured by imposed development. My name, Sineku Kuzukulu, was actually a name that was given to me by my grandfather. It is a tradition in my community that your grandfather, if he is no more, your father gives you the name. Traditionally in our culture, the mothers, they do not give kids their name. It's because the names, they are given for a particular reason, and part of it is to record the family history. So I come from a very big family. So my grandfather had eight wives. So those eight wives, they are all my grandmothers, and their children, they are all my uncles and my aunts and all of that. So And those are the people who had an influence in my upbringing. Even on my mother's side of the family, my mother's grandfather, whom I grew under when... 
staying on my mother's family. He also had eight wives. So again, a very big family. Again, many uncles, many aunts from that side. So I come from, from that side of the family. And my name is Sine Kuku. When somebody says Sine in our language means we have. Ikuku is the pride. So when we are proud of something, or we have pride, or even sometimes it's the same word is used to refer to heritage, ikuku, like the people speak the Zulu language. So when I was born, my grandfather, when he heard that my mother has given birth, then he said, so-and-so's wife is given birth. That child is the pride of our family. The family being those, the, the entire family as in eight wives. So when we talk of family here in, in my culture, we do not talk of your mother and father and all your sisters. So we refer to the entire family. The entire family is all my grandfather's children. Even up until today, when we talk about family, we refer to that. So therefore, I'm proud of the fact that my grandfather gave me the name. We also, in the culture, we also believe that people must follow their names. What was intended with your name? So you must try and strive to live up to it. So Sinekuku, we have pride. So I strive to be the pride of my family, of my community, of my tribe. That's one of the driving forces behind what I do. Thank you so much for sharing that introduction. To offer some more context, in the 1950s to 1960s, residents of Mponzo land resisted the betterment schemes of South Africa's apartheid government's Bantustan policy, leading to the Pondo Revolt of 1961. Can you share a little more about this historical backdrop to help us gain a clearer picture of what the cultural landscape of Mponzo land looks like today and why it's been recognized as one of the most threatened heritage sites of South Africa? All of us who are coming from the so-called the third world or who are coming from the indigenous communities, we know that when the Europeans started traveling all over the world looking for places they want to occupy or they use the term to colonize. So when, as indigenous people, our territories were colonized, Europeans were looking for one thing, the best land that they could use to support the European industries. In other words, we're looking for raw materials, the land that they would use. And hence, most of these indigenous territories ended up being the places where they grow tea, coffee, sugar cane, you, you, you name it. So when the Europeans, therefore, when they come to these so-called colonies, to the territory of indigenous people, they always wanted a way to say, how can they have the land? That's where all the wars, people fighting to protect their, their land um, has actually come from. So in Bonderland, therefore, what we had was that one of the policies which the settlers or the colonialists introduced was forcing people to reduce the stock number. If you had 100 kekel, they want you to have only 10. 
they want to reduce the size and the plots of land which you cultivate into one hectare. They want people to stop living in scattered settlement. You know, all indigenous people, they would live in the forest, they live on grassland, but we always maintain a scattered settlement so that where your house is, you can be surrounded by the land you want to cultivate, which makes it easy. And all of that, you could, we must have enough land to graze your livestock and, and all that. So therefore, a policy here after a commission by Tomlinson was introduced, which was forcing us to do all of those things, these villages were to be known as betterment villages. So this was a resistance against the land grab by, by the white government that had colonized our, our country. So when they colonized our Mbondo land in 1894, they started imposing these immediately after the Second World War because they should have started earlier, but when the, the Second World War started, so things were put on hold. And then immediately after 1945, they started the implementation of these Tomlinson Commission's recommendations, which was forcing people to be clustered together to, for the people to be pushed so that all the land could be released, which then the white government would decide what to do with the land. So in Bonderland, people resisted that. So this was about resistance, and in particular because the government had co-opted the traditional leaders. Our traditional leaders were now part of the council. They were sitting in a council with the magistrates. They then started paying them salaries. So in order to co-opt them or to corrupt them so that they agree. And then the traditional leaders started bringing in these top-down policies which were coming from these magistrates. Then the people started questioning them, say, you're supposed to be our traditional leader. And in the traditional leadership system, you rule by consensus. It's a bottom-up process. Mm. The people make the decisions, which is then given to the traditional leader. Now, but the traditional leaders were now work, working with the colonialists in a top-down system where they are coming to tell people about the laws that the, the magistrate have given them about this um, reclustering of settlements and and cutting down stuff and people said no you you are selling off our land by so doing and then people started meeting on, on top of certain hills refusing to go to the traditional court and then people started attacking wanting to kill these traditional leaders say because they have sold the land so we need to get rid of them and have the other leaders and then the other people in the community started trying to protect the, the traditional leader. So as a result, the war ensued, therefore the conflict, even people burning each other's houses and all of that. So people being divided against those who protect traditional leaders and those who are trying to get rid of the imposed the government system. So the, this was the war which culminated between 1958 up to 1961. And up until around about March in 1961, in a major meeting where all the people from all over Bondoland, they were meeting in an area next to the town of Flagstaff in a hill called Inguza Hill. When they met there to discuss, then the next thing, the police vans appeared, the helicopters in the air, people were cornered there, they started shooting, and then they killed something between 11 or 13 people on that day. And then the other people more than 30 people were, were arrested and were taken up to Pretoria, the capital of South Africa, and they were hanged there. 
and their bodies were only exhumed and returned back home uh, now we're closer to 2000 under the new dispensation. So that was the war. And, and that was the first struggle. There were many other struggles that people fought. So today, when we have got challenges that threaten the land security in our area, people, elders always reflect back and say, so many people died protecting this land. We cannot allow in our time for this land to be taken. So that's one of the motivating factors for us mm. to be able to continue to wage the war to protect the land today in, in Bondoland. Yeah. And some of the social dynamics that you mentioned certainly show up in similar forms today that we're going to talk about a little later. But mm. one of your key areas of interest has been supporting and promoting rural development. But what you mm. mean by this is quite different than the dominant top-down and colonial ideas of development. So this is more of a big picture question. But as you look at the forms of development that much of the quote-unquote developed world have gone through and that your communities may have been pressured to let in and engage with, what critiques and concerns do you have about imposed development from your cultural standpoint, and also as they relate to the larger social, economic, and ecological crises of our time that definitely look different in different places, but seem to share a lot of the same roots? Yes. You see, the problem is that the so-called development, which has been envisioned outside of the community more than often brings challenges to the community because it doesn't take into consideration the aspirations and the culture, the way of life of the people. It also disregards the right of the people to self-determination. And more than anything, it destroys the ecosystem goods and services that people are reliant on. So, for instance, if, if you, were, you were to... Look at mining, for instance. They want to mine. We have been fighting for more than 20 years in, a, in our coastline. We have been fighting against a mining by an, an Australian company which wants to mine titanium and other heavy minerals in our coastline, which we have in abundance. But we oppose to that because if we allow that to happen, so the next thing we are going to have dust flying all over because there's dry sand mining. And once they've taken the, the, the mineral for, from the soil, then the soil becomes very light and then the dust starts flying around, which means we're going to have dust in the air, which is going to affect people's health. We're going to have our grasslands, which are grazed by livestock, being coated with dust. So we are going to have our waters, our rivers, our streams, our estuaries being polluted by, by, by dust. But also that's going to temper with the water table because they will be digging it down too. So we, as the people here, we are dependent on the land. Our food come, comes from the land. So the land is everything to us. And our belief as indigenous people of Mbona, we believe that we are born of the land. The land provides for us. And when a baby is born, when the umbilical cord drops off, it is buried either inside the heart or is thrown into the crowd. In other words, linking the baby still, as you grow up as a human being, you are still linked to the soil. That's why they will bury your umbilical cord within your home. And also the land provides us with food. And then when we are sick, the land gives us the medicine, all the herbal medicines we know almost 
every plant and what medicinal uses are found in those uh, plants. So the land looks after us. And when we are dead, the land takes us in. So therefore, the land becomes, is like our mother. So therefore, if the land is so crucial and so critical and so central to our way of life, so the land, therefore, you cannot put a price tag on the land. Whilst if you look at the so-called development paradigms from the West, they don't see it that way. When they see the land, they will see minerals. They see the amount of money they will make. They want to fence off. They say people, uh, what do they say? When uh, you are prohibited from passing through, you'll be prosecuted and all those nonsense. So they commodify everything. If you look at the ocean, the ocean will respect the, 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 the ocean. But now when you look at from the West, they want to explore for oil and gas, which is going to pollute the ocean. We, in our culture, we don't even use beef to fish in the ocean because the belief is that you're going to pull out the princess of the ocean, that is mermaids. So you are not allowed to use that. So we respect the ocean and we believe that if you ever use beef, you fish and you catch a mermaid, then the weather, the climate will be so angry that you will have torrential rainfall, flooding, severe storms and all of that. So, and we believe our ancestors live in the ocean. So protecting the land, the ocean, the rivers, everything. So because it provides for us. But to the Westerners, they see opportunities to make money. Everything is commodified. And in the process, when you drill for oil, when you mine for minerals, you trash the land and the land becomes, it becomes impossible for the land to provide for you. Mm. So the land is then destroyed. So the development, which is envisaged from the West, which is about profit making, goes against our belief system, our way of life, our culture, our interdependence to the land. The land owns us. We cannot turn around and put a price tag and sell the land as a commodity because whatever price you charge for the land, you can charge many millions US dollars, but the fact is you will make use of that money and the land will remain. So you cannot equate the land to monetary value. Mm. I feel really fired up hearing you mm. talk about this. And I want to go back to a point that you mentioned. I think some people have the tendency to overlook the role of heavy metals themselves within the living soil ecology, as if they can be separated and taken out of the ground without permanent impacts to the living landscape, as if the layers of soil can just be put back and the plants will grow back to restore the exact same ecosystems. Mm. And I think you had mentioned before that there's a reason that heavy metals are called heavy metals. So that was yes. a really important point that I hadn't thought of much before. So I really appreciated that. Yes. No, the heavy minerals, they are, they are meant to keep your soil down there. They are actually the basis for the vegetation growth. When you remove those heavy minerals, then your, your, your soil, your dust starts flying because it is the heavy minerals that keep your soil down. It is the heavy, heavy minerals. They don't only keep your soil down, but they also act like the oils or the food for the vegetation growth. So, and we know that the vegetation growth for, 
we we depend on because we we need the medicines they come from there the the grazing for for the livestock that comes from there so you remove those heavy minerals then that soil you cannot bring that soil or that land or that piece of land back to its original form you will never be able to bring back the diversity because that mineral is there for a reason it's what makes the land whole it's what makes the land full once you have taken that out you will never have a holistic piece of land or piece of ecosystem you have destroyed it and you have trashed it forever that's why you need to try by all means to try and keep the, the the land and in the manner that you are ma- making use of, of of the land to be able to respect the land hence i'm saying the land is our mother so we need therefore to be make sure that's why we've got rituals we've got ceremonies we pay respect even if you we go into an indigenous forest to collect medicine you don't just take a bark of a tree from any side of the tree there is an acceptable side of the tree where you must take that particular medicine and before you do that you ask for the permission from the tree you talk to the tree in our culture we even go to an extent of dropping white beads just a piece of beads there we call that ugukosiza where we pay respect in other words we recognize and because we do that people from the west it has taken them a long time to know and to understand that trees they are alive they can hear you that's why when we collect the medicine and we can talk to the medicine we tell the medicine what the help that, that that we will require that's why we talk to the trees so that respect that respect to creation to the environment and understanding that trees are alive there is no way and no microbiologists can understand why the microorganisms under soil or in the root system are able to group themselves according to the different species of trees the microorganisms they are they are unique each different tree in the forest has got different microorganisms that's why when you collect the medicine you know that from that tree i will get the the medicine that will help me to treat the headache from that one i will take some medicine for the stomach cramps that's why even the taste of those barks and the leaves from the trees they're different because so trees are living things so when we talk to them they hear us and when we ask for the medicine if we pay respect the medicine works but if we go there and we disregard and we don't pay respect the medicine doesn't work so we have two rivers here one river is called mtauvumi the medicine does not work doesn't agree and then we've got another river which is closest to me from this hill where i'm talking you from which we will call it mtetu our medicine so because when the medicine was collected they it didn't work for whatever reason because they didn't follow the the procedures and then they got here the medicine they collected here worked because in the collection of medicine there's a lot of respect so it is mother nature who takes care of us and we need to respect mm. every other living things even the rocks when for instance things go wrong people are traditional leaders 
our our shaman, they go, they will go and talk to a rock. They go and talk to an ant hill. They go to the where the pathways cross. They go where there is a thick bush. And when they talk in those five different places, once they've gone and they've spoken, they are talking to the ancestors and they go because you will never know where the ancestor, your ancestor is resting on a particular day. But when they go to those five places, they know they're going to get an answer to whatever that they are, they are asking for because they are everywhere. So therefore, for instance, we had the cases where people or the judges in court, they ask us whether the ancestors, they live in a particular part of the ocean. How are we supposed to know? All we know is that our ancient ancestors, they travel through the rivers and they settle down. Their final resting place is the ocean. That's why when those who are training to become traditional healers, they go and consult with, with the ocean. So we respect everything, everywhere, as if our ancestors are everywhere, as if the spiritual beings which are living in the spirit world, because they're living within the same space with them, but the fact is we do not see them. So therefore you need to walk with the understanding that there are other life forms which are beyond your own understanding, that are living on the same land, on the same space. Therefore, you treat the rivers, the grasslands, the forests, the ocean, the, the, the natural pools, the waterfalls with respect of knowing, understanding, acknowledging that there are other things. And only when we do that, that we shall be able to live in harmony. When we disrespect this land, this planet, that's when challenges, big challenges like we see now with climate change and all of that, they come to us because we are not treating the land and the spaces. We don't give them the sacredness that they deserve. Every piece of the land is sacred. Mm. I think it's easy for people with extractive mindsets to brush a lot of these perspectives off. But the reality is that there is so much we don't understand. There's so much complexity within ecosystems, within landscapes that we are incapable of understanding. So they yes. really demand our humility and respect. And also, if we don't fully understand the complexity of the ecosystem, then we also don't know what we actually lose when we completely destroy exactly. them or extract parts of the whole when parts really need to come together to create the whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. So a lot of important lessons here. And in November of 2018, the Amadiba community won a significant court judgment that confirms the community's right to say no to mining on your lands. So as a community member and leader who's been really involved in this process, what can you share about what it took on the grounds in terms of organizing, strategy, and coalition building to achieve this victory and affirmation of your community self-determination? We have a thing that, that says in our culture, umtu ngumtu ngabantu. That means you are who you are because of the other people and the other beings that surround you. So in other words, you cannot be able to achieve much if you are alone. That's why they say in the African proverb, 
whether it is the Chinese where they say, if you want to go quickly, you must go alone. But if you want to go too far, go together. So we have achieved all of what we have achieved because of the other people who have been kind enough to join us in the struggle, because of the journalists who have been diligent in terms of coming to us to listen to our story and be able to take it out to radio, to newspapers, to TV. And because of the lawyers who have been able to make sense of what we are saying and be able to find the relevant legislation and the laws and the constitution and be able to argue them in court, we have been, because of so many partner organizations, people who have been able to listen and to be able to come on board and to advise us and to share with us because of many academics who have come from all over the world coming here to, to Amadiba in our area to listen to us and to do research and to document that. So that that's the kind of partnership, collaboration, working together that has been able to help us to even understand deeper in terms of and to be able to help us win though those particular battles so it is never there's no one individual that would stand up and say no they were able to win because of me as an individual we are indebted to many partners to many ngos to many donors who have been able to hear our cries and be able to come on board so so in other words partnerships and working with the other people and allowing other people to come to your space and listen to the other people and share and be able not to keep quiet, but to cry out for help has been very, very successful. And we went to court wanting the court to declare that as indigenous people of Wonderland, we have a right to say no. We wanted a declaratory order that that guarantees us because we knew the constitution of this country says everyone has got a right to a, a safe and healthy environment protected. And we're saying here, the, the government, Department of Minerals, is giving a, a license, a permit for somebody to come and mine our land, disregarding our right to self-determination as indigenous people. So we had to go to court. Fortunately, there were enough laws. So in other words, and it's important for indigenous people all over the world to understand that those principles like your FPIC, your free prior informed consent, those are very important and people should not be allowing multinational corporations to come and do as they please in their territory. So we wanted to be able to help to contribute in the body of knowledge to say, if your courts in your country, they don't work, there are international courts that you can actually go to to claim your right because the United Nations has put the declarations for indigenous people for their right to self-determination. So it cannot be right, therefore, when multinational corporations, they travel from wherever they come from, from Europe or from the Americas or from Asia, then they come and they trash the very basis of livelihood that we are dependent on and then be left like that. So it is important. The biggest lesson is for people everywhere and anywhere in this planet to be able to stand up, 
to defend first and foremost their rights, but to defend more than anything the rights of the future generations who are yet to be born. And then by so doing, when you go to court and you litigate and to claim your rights, you are creating the precedents that could be used by those who are yet to be born to defend the planet. But you are also helping even your very same enemy who's fighting you, who wants to trash and to destroy your land. You are helping them because you are trying to find the means and ways to sustain life on this planet of ours called Earth. Well, more recently, you've been working alongside many partners to fight against big oil company Shell's exploration of oil and gas on your shores. And according to the Africa report, Shell argues that its procedures for managing the impact from seismic activities are in line with the latest global industry standards. And the hydrocarbon reserves, which its seismic survey aims to uncover, have the potential to, quote, significantly contribute to South Africa's energy security and the government's economic development programs, the company says, end quote. How does this promise of economic development and energy security for the country at large conflict with human-scale rural development as defined in this more bottom-up way by local communities? And what more about Shell's oil and gas surveys or process of attempting to get approval and consent would you like to share? We have many problems with that statement from Shell. One, we are challenging Shell on, on the fact that both Shell and our government, they made no effort. Even PASA, which is the Petroleum Agency of South Africa, they made no effort to consult with the indigenous people who are living adjacent to the very ocean that they want to do seismic exploration on. The very people that would be directly affected by Shell's operation. So that, for us, it was a big problem that we need, we have a right. This is our land. In our traditional way of life, no one comes and builds next to your home without you giving a consent. We said, if Shell is going to come and now be a neighbor with us in this ocean, we have every right to be heard, to have a say on that. So we have to be consulted. But also, Allowing for Shell to come and explore for oil and gas in the name of economic development. One thing that corporates and their shareholders fail to get is the fact that we cannot continue to grow the economy for an indefinite period. This planet has got limitations. We cannot trash every ocean. This planet is made mainly of the oceans and the people are dependent on the oceans. Our weather systems are dependent on the, on the ocean. Coastal communities' livelihood are dependent on the ocean. What about all of those things? When they focus on one thing, on about gathering profit for their shareholders, even if this was going to create jobs, but, but the truth of the matter is that once you allow for oil and gas to be explored, you're allowing for the ocean to be destroyed because whenever there is a, a drilling for oil, there are oil spills. When they change valves, there are uncontrollable spills, which they call wastage in their, in their language. We know in the places where these big oil giants have worked, there are 
terrible oil spills in, in the African continent, places even here in our neighboring country, Mozambique, the challenge that is faced by Mozambican people due to the oil and, and gas industry. You go up to Nigeria in the Niger Delta, uh, the people of Ogoni land today are unable to fish. People have, for centuries or for thousands of years who lived off the, the ocean fishing, today they cannot fish because of the oil spills. There's been court cases where shell were taken to court. Recently, there was a judgment which was ordering Shell to pay so many billions to, to the people of Okoniland as a compensation for the destruction of their livelihoods. Shell is appealing that. And it's appealing that at the time when Shell was touted as having made the biggest profit ever, but they don't want to use some of that profit to compensate the people who have lost their livelihood. But what makes me mad of all of these things is the fact that globally, all the countries and all these big corporates, they meet in, in what we call the Conference of Parties. Recently, COP26 in Glasgow, they met and they were talking about the impact of fossil fuels. A month later, they met in November last year in, in Scotland. A, hardly a month after that, Shell is in South Africa, wants to start exploring for more oil and gas. Shell has just lost a case in Netherlands where they were ordered to cut down their emission, their carbon footprint by 40%. But they are coming to South Africa to explore for more, for more oil and gas. And the terrible thing with climate change is that the severe weather and the severe storms and the heavy downpours. Those who watch the news, they must have seen recently in April, two months ago, in April in South Africa that we had in areas of Deben and our area in Bonaland, we had the worst flooding that we have ever seen, which was related to the warming up of the planet, to climate change. And close to 500 people drowned during these recent floods, in particular around Deben. So one thing became very clear that these severe storms, they affect mainly the poor people. The poor people are the most directly affected. The rich people, they are able to bounce back quickly because they have the insurances and all of that, even if their houses are washed away, but they are able. So not a single... Um, a really rich person who was who drowned in this recent flood. So they affect mainly the poor. And now, so therefore, why should we, as the poor people, be allowing these people to cause more harm for us? Because in terms of climate change impact, we are the ones who are directly, who are more vulnerable to climate change. So in whatever way you look at it, even if, of course, they will be touting economic development, but the truth of the matter is that they are going to make profit for their shareholders. So the benefits, they accrue to the people who are already rich, who do not need that particular money. And the, and the poor people, they become poorer. And then their land, their ocean is destroyed. They have no source of life, livelihood. Nothing is going to be done by those, uh, by Shell, to compensate for these people who would have lost livelihood 
because seismic exploration we have been able to demonstrate in court that it affects the base of the food chain within the ocean. You are allowed to do it. The people who suffer the most here is, is, is the fishing folks. They, when they go out there, they are not going to, to find fish. So there is nothing good about allowing seismic exploration. And we are prepared as indigenous people of Mbondeland to go and, and to go the furthest we would ever be able to go to stop seismic exploration and the drilling for oil and gas in our ocean because that threatens our, our immediate livelihood and it is not fair. So we should not in any way in the world this in this planet governments of all of these countries should have started long time ago moving away from fossil fuels but they don't because some people are standing to benefit those pro, uh, those companies are more influential to politicians all over the world and they're able to say because they are they are raking money they are raking millions and billions from from these operations they don't want to 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 stop it they want to continue so should we therefore fold our arms and allow them when we know that our life is at stake our livelihoods are being destroyed and the life of this planet is being cut short due to profiteering should we be keeping quiet no we can't it is better to die fighting for that which is right than to fold your arms and watch when you can see that the future generations are ultimately going to have no future because we are sitting and doing nothing. What this leads me to also think about is how when extractive industries come in from the outside and conduct their cost-benefit analyses or environmental impact assessments, they cannot know the true extent of the cost of what they mm. want to do if they do not really know the land and their place-specific knowledge and the role of a variety of especially endemic species and characteristics. You co-authored the book Medicinal and Charm Plants of Ponzoland, in which you helped compile knowledge about a wide variety of medicinal and charm plants, many of which are found only in this region. So I'd be curious to hear about your lessons and inspirations from the elders, healers, and herbalists you've engaged with for this project, and what they tell you about the role of place-based knowledge that may not be valued as much in mainstream educational institutions or even considered in these sorts of cost-benefit assessments. Yes, it is important to understand that wisdom, uh, wisdom rests in places on the land. That's why indigenous people give every piece of the land on the land they occupy names because they're recording and documenting the history, the oral history, things that have happened there. So the people who understand the land better is those people who live in it. But unfortunately, the people, the indigenous people in their territories are always invisible to these multinational corporations and to government. So indigenous people, they know because they have tried and tested every herb on their land. They know better. And they know, and where do you find a particular species, a particular medicine? So, and their knowledge, which has been 
over many centuries, over thousands of years, that has been collected and be passed down orally about the medicines is an amazing source of knowledge. When you explore the medicinal uses, you begin to see the intricate interrelationship between the people and the environment, the people and biodiversity, the people and plants. So you begin to realize you cannot separate people from the land, from biodiversity, from nature. People need nature to thrive. They need biodiversity. And people and their land, people do not live on the land. They live in the land. So because they are so intertwined and interconnected about so many things, whether you're looking at their livestock, whether you are looking at the, their waters, when you are looking at the sacred sites, you are looking at the medicinal plants, but people and their land, they are so interconnected that life becomes impossible. So it therefore becomes a very big problem when you've got a multinational corporation who comes to an area territory that they do not know. And they come, they already know what, what they want to do. They come they destroy the sense of place. They destroy the people's culture. And then you destroy the social fabric. You rule and divide the people. You cause conflict. You cause infighting. So whilst if people are left to live their lives, then we are able to preserve knowledge about everything, about the indigenous knowledge of that land which is passed down from one generation to the next. So they do not, and, and I don't think they will ever get it in terms of how much and what is at stake when people come and disturb the peace and harmony in an area of how people live in harmony with the environment. Yeah, these sorts of knowledge can't be universalized or quantified in that really reductionistic form of monetary currency. So there's a lot that goes missing when we use that as the ultimate measurement of how we determine value. But we are nearing the end of our main discussion here, but I would love to invite you to share anything else that I didn't get to ask you about and any cost to action you have for our listeners. We in Bondoland, we, we, we do not only fight against this unacceptable, but we also do proactive work in terms of, for instance, I'm engaged in the whole lot of work in ecotourism development where we are establishing the homestays so that people who come from outside, tourists, they are able to share, people are able to share their space here with tourists so they come and stay in their homes. So we've got a, a, a hiking trail that goes down the, the entire Bondoland coastline with people staying with these people. We have, we're doing the agroecology work with the farmers, sharing lessons of how we could farm in a manner that, that protects the land. We are doing a lot of work on youth capacity building. We're trying to find means and ways that the, the young people become stewards. So we we trying to, we've been working with Inside Share, for instance, hence you 
with Josh. I, I got to know Josh through the connection with Inside Share, who has been training our youth on how to make films. And uh, they are making, so as indigenous people, that we make our own films to tell our own stories and to raise the awareness about the challenges that, that we face. So in order to revoke and to, to, to encourage debates about the issues that affect us within our community, so there's a whole lot of work that we are doing in order to try. We, we, we also, for instance, have just this week on, on, on Tuesday and Wednesday, we were attending uh, a training on the li- livestock production with the, with a group of young farmers here that I organized. So we're doing all sorts of things. So we're not just fighting against these unacceptable developments, but we're doing a lot of proactive work in order to make sure that life goes on. I work with, for those who have access, I would like to look at what we do. I would mention two particular NGOs that I work with directly to do all the things I've mentioned. I work with the CRZ Caesar Trust. Um, CRZ Caesar, that's S-I-Y-A-S-I-Z-A, CRZ Caesar. CRZ Caesar Trust, and I also work with SWC, Sustaining the Wild Coast, where we're trying to get all of this work done in order to make sure that our communities are able to preserve the indigenous knowledge and also to preserve it, uh, those that, that would be useful for the younger people. Yeah, so there's a lot going on and it's important for people to stand up and to be able to do the things that matter to them. Thank you. What has been an impactful book that you've read or publication you follow? I love reading all the books that document the the, the indigenous uh, knowledge. I'm currently reading now one book, which is Braiding Sweetfelt, uh, which is a book written about the, the, the indigenous people um, in various parts of the world. What is a motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? Taking young people back to the future. In other words, learning from the indigenous knowledge in order to find the better parts as we go forward. So taking the youth back to the future. So learning from Mm. the wisdom of the elders of the indigenous knowledge and to find the better ways and pathways to the future. And what are your biggest sources of inspiration right now? My biggest source of inspiration is listening to the elders. Listening to the elders, to the wisdom of those who have never been to school, who are never tainted with the Western education system, and 
and listening to that, listening to the trees, to the birds, to the insects of our land, and be able to see what an amazing place and how the wisdom of the of our ancestors was actually more clever than any other science that you have ever come across when you look into how they were able to do this research and be able to find the medicinal you actually start wondering how did they manage to find all of this so that indigenous wisdom is something that is yet to be explored that is yet to be integrated into the mainstream of the of academics in this planet Green Dreamer, this is a wrap, but to learn more and stay updated, you can follow Sinegugu on Twitter at Sinegugu Zukulu. And we will have more links and resources from this episode for you in our show notes at greendreamer.com. Sinegugu, thank you so much for sharing about your community, activism, and work with us today. It's been a huge honor for me to speak with you. For now, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? We we have to uphold our indigenous wisdom. If we don't do it, nobody else will. We have to start documenting and making films showcasing the wisdom of our ancestors. Thank you. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To make a contribution to help sustain and co-create the future of the show with a donation of any amount, you can head to greendreamer.com support. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us out so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Hummingbird by Leah Thomas. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode.